Thank you. That concludes general questions. The next item of business is First Minister's questions. I intend taking both constituency and general supplementaries after question two, so members wishing to ask such supplementaries should press their request to speak buttons during question two. I will keep a note of members who press and may take further supplementaries from those members if we have any time in hand after question seven. And members wishing to ask a supplementary to questions three to seven should press during the relevant question. And I call Douglas Ross. Thank you, Presiding Officer. On Tuesday, Public Health Scotland revealed that a thousand fewer people were admitted to A&E this week compared to the same week two years ago. But the number of patients waiting for more than half a day to be seen at A&E is now 10 times higher. COVID has made things worse, but there are bigger, longer term issues in Scotland's health service. This government failed to properly resource our ambulance service. This government reduced the number of hospital beds. This government didn't plug the gaps in Scotland's NHS workforce. First Minister, which of these decisions taken before the pandemic do you regret most? First Minister. Well, firstly, and perhaps uh, most importantly, since this government took office, uh, the number of A&E consultants working in our National Health Service has increased by 242%. Um, so that's the investment in our National Health Service and in the workforce of our National Health Service that uh, this government has supported and indeed will continue to support. Uh, our accident and emergency departments are working under intense pressure, uh, as indeed is the NHS as a whole. Um, that pressure has been considerably exacerbated uh, because of COVID. Uh, the figures that we saw last week of just over seven in 10 people being seen within four hours within A&E is not good enough. I think it is important to put that into context because health services across the UK, across Europe and the world um, are struggling with this pressure in similar ways. So if we look at the last month for which we have full figures available, performance in our core A&E departments in Scotland against the four hour target was 79.5%. That compares with 67.7% in England and 60.7% in Wales. So we clearly see pressure right across the UK. Uh, for our part, uh, we are supporting the actions to allow our accident and emergency departments to address that pressure and to improve waiting times. So, for example, that includes work to enhance discharge processes. It includes the redesign of urgent care. It includes the opening of additional bed capacity, strengthening links with social and community care to maximise the community response and enhancing evening and weekend working. So we will continue to invest in staff, we will continue to invest in the NHS overall and we will continue to support the reforms that allow patients to flow through the National Health Service more quickly than is the case at the moment. And I would hope, although we are not complacent about this given the pressures that we are facing, that we will start to see some improvement in A&E waiting times in the weeks ahead. Douglas Ross. First Minister says she is not complacent about this, but spent her whole answer dismissing the fact that people are waiting more than half a day for, to be treated in A&E, and that is 10 times higher now yeah. than it was two years ago before the pandemic. And we got the usual tactic from the First Minister to say, look at what's happening in Wales, look yeah. at what's happening yeah. in England. Nicola Sturgeon is Scotland's First Minister. Yeah. 
She was Scotland's health secretary, and I would like her to take some responsibility for what is happening in Scotland's health service. Because Nicola Sturgeon is hiding behind COVID, but it's not all down to the pandemic. Since 2015, more than 850,000 people have waited longer than the four-hour target time at a and &E. Since 2015, 850,000 people. So why has it happened? Well, from 2015 to 2020, the number of staffed acute beds in Scotland has dropped by more than 2,500. The First Minister has finally agreed that the NHS is in crisis, but we need action now. The Royal College of Emergency Medicine said we need 1,000 more acute beds. How many of those extra beds has the Scottish Government now identified? First Minister. Well, firstly, I don't think anybody uh, listening to my answer would have heard me dismiss the pressure that the NHS is under in any way, shape or form. Uh, and the reason I do uh, give some context is because if we listen uh, to Douglas Ross, uh, then he seeks to give the impression that this is uh, simply something that is unique to Scotland and all because of the SNP. Our National Health Service is under pressure because of a global pandemic. So I think it is important, not least in the interests of those working hard across our NHS, as we take the action to support them and to improve performance, that we do see that wider context. And of course, we continue to ensure uh, that we invest in staff in our health service. I said, and uh, perhaps not surprisingly, Douglas Ross didn't refer to this in his follow-up question, but since this government took office, a 242% increase in a &E consultants. Uh, we also uh, see staffing across the NHS generally at record levels and we see the budget of the NHS at record levels. There is work to do to redesign uh, how patients are cared for. That's why the redesign of urgent care is so important, uh, to make sure that patients get the care they need where they need it and that our accident emergency departments and our most acute uh, parts of the NHS can deal uh, more quickly with those who need uh, that aspect of care. Um, on beds, we've seen uh, a change in the profile of bed numbers uh, way before this government took office as length of stay in our hospitals uh, decrease and that's again a picture replicated across uh, the whole of the UK. Actually in the most recent uh, time we've seen um, a slight increase in the number of acute beds uh, operational across our health service. Uh, the health secretary was meeting with the Royal College of Emergency Medicine just today. Uh, I was discussing with officials yesterday how, uh, for example, we will free up additional bed capacity uh, through uh, increasing the pace at which people who no longer need to be in hospital uh, are discharged to more appropriate settings. There is a, a range of work underway in these very challenging circumstances to make sure that we support the National Health Service and that's what I will continue to focus on each and every single day to support those working so hard on the front line. Douglas Ross. Both her answers, this uh, statistic about A&E consultants, clearly one of her many, many media advisors told her, this is a zinger, use this answer yeah. on anything yeah. about A&E waiting yeah. times. Yeah. That gives little comfort to the 850,000 people that have been waiting longer than the target time she herself and her government set for people to be seen in A&E. And this is a crisis that is happening throughout the NHS. Capacity is down across the board. So let's just take one alarming example. The country was shocked when it was uncovered that 200,000 women were excluded from Scotland's cervical cancer screening programme. 
Tragically, lives were lost as a result of that. Of all of the services that should be returning to pre-pandemic levels, this is a vital one. But new figures show that the number of cervical cancer screenings is a third lower this year compared to the same period in 2019. This can't possibly all be blamed on COVID. So why have cervical cancer screenings dropped so dramatically when the NHS is supposed to be remobilising? First Minister. Well, first of all, before I come on to the very important issue of cervical uh, cancer screening, can I just uh, complete uh, the answer, uh, because Douglas Ross uh, did uh, go back to it himself in his last question on A&E. Um, if Douglas Ross hadn't wanted me to uh, state the fact that A&E staffing had increased substantially under this government, then he shouldn't have asked me why we had not invested in A&E staffing. I am simply making the point that we are investing in staffing and in capacity in our National Health Service. Uh, the waiting times in our accident emergency departments are not good enough. I think I said that very clearly in my first answer. Around 7 out of 10 in the most recent weekly uh, figures being seen within four hours. That is not good enough, which is why we're taking the range of actions uh, that I set out in my initial answer to support staff to improve that, and I hope we will see improvements in that over the coming weeks. Um, it's not good enough, uh, and I will say that again, but again, to give context, uh, we continue to have the best performing any departments anywhere in the UK, even in these difficult circumstances, which suggests that the actions we are taking, while they need to go further, uh, are helping to support those delivering that care on the front line. And we will continue to do that in the most difficult circumstances that our National Health Service uh, has probably faced since its establishment. Now, on the issue of cervical screening, the uh, Public Health Minister, of course, has made two statements now to Parliament um, on the error that, again, goes back uh, many, many years, predates this government, where some women uh, were wrongly excluded from cervical screening. She has set out the audit work that has been done. She set out the steps that have been taken to rectify that, to see women in uh, those circumstances, to make sure they are being provided with appropriate follow-up care. And I think it's important that we continue to see that work through uh, to give uh, women the reassurances they need. Um, that is important, and I don't want in any way to uh, underplay the importance and significance of that. But clearly there are wider issues around encouraging women to come forward for screening, whether that's cervical screening or, or breast screening or any uh, of the screening programmes. Uh, there has been uh, an impact from COVID on people coming forward for routine health care, and that will include the screening programmes. We had a a period, uh, a relatively short period, where our screening programmes had to be paused. Uh, they are now operational again, um, and we want to see numbers uh, coming through those screening programmes uh, increase, uh, and increase even beyond where they were uh, before the pandemic. And that's why we will continue to focus on that, the importance of early diagnosis. And actually, all of us uh, can help here by getting very clear, very loud, very consistent messages across to women and to others uh, who are eligible for screening to come forward for these appointments um, because these programmes are open and they are extremely important. Douglas Ross. Thank officer. The First Minister's answers all add up to a government that is reacting to circumstances, not one that's in control of them. They're scrambling about putting on sticking plasters over each new crisis instead of planning to stop them in the first place. They're only reacting when disaster strikes. We're short on hospital beds. We're short on frontline staff. We are short on leadership from this government. Yeah. The First Minister is once again hiding behind COVID and, as we've heard today, deflecting to the rest of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Isn't it the case 
that the pandemic has completely exposed her government's poor record on running Scotland's NHS. Isn't it the case that this crisis that spiralled over the past few weeks has shown ministers constantly behind the curve? And isn't it time that the First Minister and her Health Secretary finally got to grip of events? First Minister. Two, two points of the pandemic. Firstly, I think anybody in this chamber who stands up and tries to pretend that the pandemic has not had an extremely uh, significant impact on all of this it is insulting people's intelligence. And I think actually lacking, lacking any credibility. Secondly, I think it is important in uh, the midst of a global pandemic that governments do respond to circumstances, that governments adapt and are flexible, um, and that is what this government has done and it is what we will continue to do. So I make no apology for making sure that where there is a need, we're providing extra funding, where there is a need, we are taking uh, new initiatives to help the health service cope with what is an unprecedented set of circumstances. Uh, of course, it is true uh, that we had pressures in our National Health Service before uh, the pandemic. Uh, but again, what uh, Douglas Ross doesn't want to look at is the progress that was being made before the pandemic in tackling exactly those uh, problems. So if you take the Waiting Times Improvement Plan, which was published back in October 2018, if we look at outpatients, uh, the number of outpatients uh, who were waiting uh, for the first appointment had reduced by 21% in the 18 months up to March 2020, just before uh, the pandemic struck. The numbers who were waiting over 12 weeks had fallen by over 32%. The number of patients waiting more than six weeks for a key diagnostic test had reduced by over 25%. Uh, there were more inpatient uh, treatments being offered and uh, patients being seen. So the point I'm making here, presiding officer, is yes, there were challenges. Those challenges were being addressed. Real progress was being made. Douglas Ross says, no, they weren't. I've just given him the evidence of the facts for the, <laughs> the, the fact that they were. We, are, we have had for the past 18 months a global pandemic. We are still in that global pandemic. That is creating the most extreme uh, circumstances for our NHS. So we will continue to take the action in common with governments everywhere to support our NHS. Uh, we will focus on that job each and every single day. Question number two, Anna Sawa. officer, last week the health secretary told the public to think twice about calling an ambulance. This week, islanders on Islay and Collinsey were told to only travel on Scotland's ferries if it was necessary. Their service relies on a 36-year-old ship that is stuck in a dry dock undergoing repairs. Scotland's ancient Calmac fleet urgently needs to be replaced. So it should have been welcome news that a contract to build ferries for Scotland's island routes was progressing to the next stage. Except the Scottish Yard didn't even make the shortlist. Instead, the contract will be awarded to a shipyard in Poland, Romania, or Turkey. Now, I applaud the Scottish Government for protecting Scottish jobs. It's just a pity that none, sorry, protecting shipbuilding jobs. It's just a pity that none of those jobs are in Scotland. So, First Minister, can you explain to us all how a Scottish yard supporting Scottish jobs and owned by the Scottish Government failed to even make the shortlist to build Scotland's ferries? First Minister. Well, before I come on to ferries, can I just... Uh, address another point. Anybody in this country who needs an ambulance should phone an ambulance. I'm clear about that. The health secretary is clear about that. Obviously, if somebody needs a part of the health service that doesn't require an ambulance, they should phone NHS 24 or another part of the health service. It is not helpful, I think, 
uh, for people uh, in this chamber to misrepresent the position uh, when people's lives are at risk. On, on ferries, on ferries, of course, uh, let's not lose sight of the fact that this government has protected uh, shipbuilding jobs here in Scotland because without the intervention of this government, Ferguson's would not still be open, it would not still be operational, and there are hundreds of people currently employed at Ferguson's who would not be employed at Ferguson's. That's the protection of shipbuilding jobs that this government has delivered. Now, Ferguson's... And, of course, these are, these are procurements uh, that are bound uh, by rules and regulations uh, that Anna Sarwar is aware of. Uh, Ferguson's is on a journey back to recovery. It's focused right now. It's focused right now, as indeed the opposition have regularly called for it to be. Colleagues, colleagues, uh, First, Minister, First Minister, if I can just have a minute, I would very much like all members to be able to hear the First Minister. Thank you. They don't want to hear it, presiding officer, I suspect, because they don't want to hear what this government has done to protect shipbuilding jobs in Scotland. The focus of Ferguson's is making sure that the two ferries that are currently delayed are completed, uh, and then the work... The work that is underway at Ferguson's, I hope, uh, will equip Ferguson's to compete for new orders and new contracts in the future. But let's not lose sight of the fact, without the intervention of this government, there'd be no Ferguson shipyard and the hundreds of jobs that are currently uh, dependent on it wouldn't even exist. Anna the, the First Minister says the company she owns is on a journey. People want ferry journeys. And that's what this government needs to address. Saving the yard is one thing, but sustaining the yard is another. Launching a ferry with painted on windows. Really, is that the best we can hope from this government? The truth is that the failure to deliver these ferries are the result of complacency and ineptitude on the part of this SNP government. That a Scottish government-owned company can't win a Scottish government contract to build ships is a national scandal that is now an international humiliation. This government has no strategy to expand services, no fleet to meet Scotland's needs, and no plan to fix the problem. The model isn't working, it isn't fit for purpose, and must be replaced. There are 15 ferries in the fleet over their original 25-year life cycle. More than enough projects to keep Ferguson's in work and even expand our industry here in Scotland, if only it was run properly. So can I ask the First Minister to raise our game Stop wasting taxpayers' money, halt the tender process, scrap steam oil, and stand up for Scottish jobs. First Minister. Well, maybe Anna Sarwar should raise his game and find one iota of consistency. Because had we followed Anna Sarwar's advice, uh, we wouldn't have saved Ferguson's from closure. You know, here's what he was saying back in 2018 uh, when he was warning about a risk that it might appear that we were taking decisions for political reasons, not purely financial or economic reasons. Uh, so Anna Sarwar, uh, I suspect, uh, would not have saved Ferguson. So we will continue to support the shipyard, we'll continue to support the workers there, and we will continue to do everything to make sure that it is in a position to compete for and win contracts in the future. And to do that, of course, uh, within the law and the constraints uh, around procurement that apply. Uh, but what I'd say to Anna Sarwar, because this is what would have happened if he and his party had been in charge, uh, a closed Ferguson's would not have been able to compete for or win contracts. We've kept it open and we are going to do the work to ensure that it is a success.
I'm a Star Wars. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure using quotes is safe ground for the First Minister. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon likes to quote a long list of excuses, but let me quote Nicola Sturgeon in 2005 at First Minister's questions, talking about ferry contracts at Ferguson's. The First Minister must raise his game. Will the work go to Poland or will it go to Port Glasgow? Instead of cowering in a corner in case someone in Europe gives him a row, he should take the decision and make it clear that if it's challenged in court, he will defend it. That is called standing up for the national interest. <laughs> Nicola Sturgeon in opposition talking about the national interest, but in government she puts Scottish jobs at risk. She delivers jobs for China, providing steel for the Queensferry crossing, jobs for Indonesia, supplying wind turbines, and now jobs for Turkey, Romania or Poland to provide our ferries. So to quote Nicola Sturgeon again, what is it going to take to make her come down on the side of a Scottish industry, a Scottish shipyard and Scottish jobs? Or is it the case that the only thing the SNP are good at manufacturing is grievance? First Minister. Well, like, there's always a sure, sure sign that Labour are in deep trouble when they go back to the Queensferry crossing. I mean, it is really desperate stuff. Yes, I did say that to Jack McConnell, because back then, Ferguson's was on the brink of closure, and Jack McConnell wasn't prepared to do anything about it. I lead a government that saved Ferguson's from closure. And interestingly, if he'd gone on to quote Jack McConnell's answer, He'd have found that Jack McConnell told me that what Anna Sarwar is now asking for would have broken the law. So perhaps a bit of consistency. This government has saved Ferguson's. There are hundreds of jobs currently at Ferguson's that wouldn't exist but for this government. So compared to Labour, who always stood by and let industry go to the wall, this government's got a track record of standing up for industry and standing up for manufacturing jobs across the country. We'll now take supplementaries and I call James Dornan. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, First Minister, last week you'll have seen and heard the reports of the disgraceful anti-Catholic singing during the Orange Order marches throughout the city of Glasgow, including in my con constituency of Glasgow, Qatar. At least three of their routes included marching past Roman Catholic churches, causing a great deal of distress and concern to the members of those parishes in the wider church in Scotland. Given these events, First Minister, would you consider the creation of a parades commission, similar to what already happens in Northern Ireland, to take a non-partisan and independent look at the number and routes of such parades? Anyone old enough to remember the annual battles at Drumcree will verify the difference the commission has made in Northern Ireland. Recently, with shameful reports of Glasgow City Councillors receiving death threats when any possible restriction of orange parades were discussed, and I am in no doubt that, just as in Northern Ireland, a parades commission would go a long way towards taking some of the heat out of the discussion of the parades. I am sure we can all agree that if these parades are to go ahead, they should take place in a way that at least threatens or intimidates those of another faith or opinion. First Minister. Uh, can I thank James Dornan for that question? In regard to the specific proposal of a parades commission, yes, I am happy that the government gives that uh, further consideration. Uh, I have already asked the Justice Secretary to consider uh, what further action could be taken uh, to maintain 
the important balance of rights between peaceful procession, freedom of speech, but also the ability of people to go about their daily lives uh, without uh, feeling unsafe and uh, being free from uh, harassment. So I'll ask uh, the Justice Secretary to consider the possible creation of a parades commission as part of that. Um, I think it is important to stress that peaceful public assembly and freedom of expression are fundamentally important rights, and I know we're all committed to upholding these, but it is also a fundamental right of any person and any community to go about their daily business without fears for their safety. Um, I know that members will join me in unequivocally uh, condemning all instances of anti-Catholic bigotry, uh, which uh, we have seen on our streets in recent times. There is no place for it in a modern Scotland, uh, and we must all show zero tolerance towards it. Um, but in terms of the specific proposal, um, I can confirm that we will give that consideration um, and we will report back to Parliament further in due course. Brian Whittle. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. Uh, during the COVID recovery committee session today, the panel of experts indicated that the case for introducing vaccine passports has yet to be demonstrated in the public domain and that there has been no effective engagement with those who will be most affected by their introduction. Given that the Scottish Government have committed to the committee and to this Parliament that this evidence does exist and it will publish it, can I ask the First Minister when this is likely to happen? First Minister. The Regulations and supporting uh, evidence will be published over the course of uh, the coming days next week uh, before the introduction of the scheme. We've published a paper this morning uh, setting out further uh, details. Uh, we see from countries across Europe uh, that COVID certification schemes can play a part in helping to stem transmission, and I believe they will play a part here. No uh, single measure is going to control the virus on its own, but we need to have a range of targeted measures to keep uh, transmission under control while keeping our economy open, and that's what COVID certification is intended to do. Uh, we have engaged extensively across uh, business interests um, and indeed uh, with other stakeholders, and we will continue to do so up to and indeed beyond uh, the introduction of the scheme. Nobody wants to be in a position uh, of having to impose any measures to deal with an infectious virus, but unfortunately that's the position we are still in, and therefore for uh, having proportionate and targeted measures, I think, is the right thing to do to keep people safe over this winter period. Pam Duncan Glancy. Thank you, President Officer. Today, across Glasgow, many people cannot access libraries and get books in the way that I, I know the First Minister herself enjoys, because the libraries and then many other leisure venues are closed. So I, to ask the First Minister what assessment the Scottish Government has made of the financial shortfall being experienced by Glasgow Life and other sport and leisure and library providers, and whether she will commit to give the city the money it needs to get the venues opening and functioning again. First Minister. Well, of course, across the city of Glasgow, the vast, vast majority of libraries are open and available uh, to people. And where uh, the small uh, number of libraries that are not open, uh, there are reasons for that that I know the Council has set out. We uh, indicated some further financial support uh, to councils to get and keep libraries open, given uh, the recognition, uh, the very strong recognition of the importance of libraries in communities. In terms of the wider issues around funding for local government, of course, we are entering uh, the budget process. The budget will be for uh, the next financial year will be set out uh, by the Scottish Government in early December, as was confirmed this week. We will have discussions across uh, the Chamber um, about the budget, as we always do. We will obviously have discussions with COSLA in terms of the local government settlement. Uh, we will, as we have done every year, 
in difficult financial circumstances be as fair to local government as we possibly can be. And of course, uh, any member uh, and indeed any party uh, has the ability to come to the finance secretary and ask uh, where they want to see more money allocated. Uh, all I would say is if they want to do that, they also have to say where they think that money should come from. So that offer is open uh, to parties across the chamber. Christine Graham. Oh, thank, thank you, Presiding Officer. First Minister, I refer to the joint agreement signed by the Scottish Government and organisations such as COSLA, the STUC and the Institute of Directors, which states that no worker should be penalised if they are off work following uh, medical advice relating to COVID-19. First Minister, I have a constituent with long COVID and she is being pressurised by her employer. So my question is, does this apply to uh, people who have been diagnosed with long COVID? First Minister. Um, yes, in principle, of course it does. I'm, I'm not going to uh, comment on individual cases because people's circumstances will be different. But I, I would say the principles behind that statement should apply uh, to anyone with any health condition. Nobody should feel pressured to go to work uh, if their health says that it is not right for them uh, to be at work. And that applies uh, in relation to people who have suffered COVID. And uh, given the nature of long COVID, uh, absolutely uh, should apply to those suffering from that condition as well. Finlay Carson. Uh, this week we learned that the SNP members of Dumfries and Galloway Council are threatening to oppose a joint bid with Scottish Borders, Carlisle City and Northumberland Councils to win the City of Culture status for the Borderlands region. It's not clearly, entirely clear why, other than the fact that it would involve both English and Scottish Councils. So will the First Minister confirm whether she will support such a cross-border bid for the Borderlands? And if so, what support can the Government make available to the bid team as they move forward? First Minister. Well, Firstly, I'll, uh, I'll happily look at uh, what the situation is. Often uh, claims are made um, about the views of SNP councillors or councillors in this chamber uh, by the Conservatives that perhaps don't bear uh, all that uh, much scrutiny. But I don't know exactly what the circumstances are in this case, and I'm, I'm happy to look into that. Uh, I have been an enthusiastic supporter of Borderlands Initiative, and I, I kind of slightly regret some of the undertone, perhaps, of the members' uh, question there. Nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, I also think it's important that we take all opportunities, particularly in these circumstances, to support culture and cultural initiatives. So I'd be happy to have a discussion uh, with the council or ask the relevant minister to do so uh, about what support uh, might be available from the Scottish Government to support any bid. Uh, on these things, you know, obviously there will sometimes be differences of opinion, uh, but let's try and uh, get behind any reasonable bid uh, for something like this. And, and for goodness sake, shy away from any claims about some of the motives why uh, people might not uh, be taking a particular position. Colin Smith. Thank you, President Officer. Yesterday, the First Minister visited Presswood Airport, but the elephant in the room was the future of the airport itself. The Chief Executive of Edinburgh Airport has said Presswick is doomed. So, more than six months after a preferred bidder was chosen, can the First Minister tell us, is the sale of Presswick going ahead? If so, when? And will that sale guarantee the existing jobs and the full repayment of the £40 million of loans? First Minister. Uh, well, it was uh, very good to visit Presswick yesterday. It was actually quite a good news day. Uh, Presswick Airport, of course, uh, set out the uh, next details of its spaceport bid. I was uh, visiting uh, Spirit Aerosystems, which had just opened a new innovation centre. That's obviously a, a very important part of the aerospace uh, cluster there. So uh, it was actually uh, a good news uh, day in terms of Presswick, a part of the country uh, that uh, is very close to my heart. In terms of the 
airport. It is the intention of the government to return uh, the airport to the private sector. That has always uh, been the case. Uh, obviously, the process of doing that has been impacted by COVID. Uh, we will set out further details of that uh, in due course. Uh, and of course, I'd make finally a point that I made to Anna Sarwar in relation uh, to Ferguson's. I think it was right for us to keep Presswick Airport open. I think it was right uh, for us to invest to protect the jobs and the economic activity. Uh, and these are often the things that Labour, in the abstract, call on us to do. But when it actually comes to putting uh, our money where our mouth is, uh, metaphorically speaking, uh, Labour are just full of criticism. So this government, again, is the one uh, that time after time after time actually stands up for jobs and stands up for industry. Question number three, Sharon Dowie. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister whether she will provide an update on the Scottish Government's work with the UK Government to create three ports in Scotland. First Minister. Uh, the Green Port model is an adaptation of the Freeport model, uh, which places strong emphasis on fair work and the move to a net zero economy. The Secretary of State for Scotland uh, wrote on the 6th of September to confirm that the UK Government would not support green ports for Scotland and would not accept our proposals for higher labour or environmental standards uh, as part of their free port model. Uh, all mention of green ports was to be avoided uh, and reference to payment of the real living wage by employers uh, benefiting from tax incentives was not to be permitted. Uh, fair work and net zero are central tenets of Scotland's future economy, and we are simply not prepared to see these commitments watered down uh, by the Tory UK government. So we will now progress plans to develop a Greenport model tailored to Scotland's economy, workers and communities. Sharon Dowie. I thank the First Minister for that answer. The SNP refused to acknowledge the benefits of any kind of a port in Scotland for a long time. However, as a result of this government's refusal to work cooperatively with the UK government, it would appear funding would only be available for one Scottish green port due to the increased operating costs of that model. Can the First Minister confirm if there will only be a single green port in Scotland? And if not, where will the additional funding come from for the remainder? First Minister. Well, we'll continue to develop and set out our proposals on green ports. Um, can I say, though, it, it wasn't about the SNP not being prepared to see advantages and benefits. We simply were not prepared to compromise on fair work or the environment. And I think the question for the Tories has to be particularly if, as I, I'm sure it is the case with the member, they wanted to see the Freeport model go ahead in Scotland, is what in earth objection could they possibly have to fair work and environmental conditions being built into these? Perhaps that rather gives the game away. Um, and there's another aspect as well. It was crucial, obviously, that Scotland would have a fair allocation of funding uh, to help establish ports, but actually the UK government's recent offer failed to even provide an equivalent uh, to what they're making available to free ports uh, in England. Uh, so if the UK government had been serious, all of these issues uh, I, I think could have been addressed, uh, but that's up to them. We will continue to take forward our plans for uh, green ports with fair work and environmental progress absolutely at their heart. Pam Gossel. So, sorry, presiding officer, my light went on. Um, it's for a question later on, after supplementary. Thank you, Ms. Russell. Um, we move to question number four, Marie McNair. Thank you, presiding officer. To ask the first minister what action the Scottish government is taking to support people on low incomes. First minister. 
Uh, we have taken a wide range of actions to support people on low incomes, uh, investing around £2.5 billion just uh, last year, including nearly a billion targeted to children. Uh, we are putting money in the pockets of hundreds of thousands of low income families through the Scottish Child Payment and Bridging Payments. That is an investment of around £130 million this year. Around 500,000 low-income households will also receive a one-off £130 pandemic payment by the end of October, an investment of £65 million. And we've also increased the value of Best Start Foods and the school clothing grant and will double the carers' allowance supplement at December payment. In addition, we've guaranteed the Scottish Welfare Fund budget at £41 million and committed a further £83 million for discretionary housing payments. Marie McNair. Thank you for that response. Scotland is facing a perfect storm with surging energy prices, furlough ending and the biggest cut to social security since 1930s. The UN Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty has condemned the £20 universal credit cut, describing it as a move that breaches international human rights law and is likely to trigger an explosion of poverty. Does the First Minister agree that the only way to protect the most vulnerable in society from devastating Tory policies is to become an independent country? First Minister. Well, yes, I, I, I do believe that having control over tax and welfare, all of the levers that other countries have at their disposal, it would be better for Scotland. And that is only possible, of course, if Scotland does become an independent country. Um, in the immediate term, though, Mary McNair is absolutely right to talk about a perfect storm. Uh, there are significant worries about energy inflation, food inflation uh, over the winter months, which uh, threaten to plunge more and more already low-income families into poverty. Um, to even be considering against the backdrop of that the removal of £20 per week uh, from some of the poorest families in our country, uh, in my view, is unthinkable for the UK government and lacks any basic morality. So if they weren't prepared to reconsider this before, surely they should do that uh, now. It would be indefensible to take this money literally uh, out of the, the mouths uh, of children uh, and to plunge more families into poverty. I, I would argue uh, that uh, not just uh, keeping that payment is essential given what many face over this winter, uh, but also looking at additional payments as this government has done through our pandemic uh, payments, additional payments by the UK government to help people, for example, uh, deal with rising energy costs is what we should be getting uh, from any UK government uh, that had any concern at all for the poorest in our society. Question number five, Jamie Green. Thank you. To ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is uh, to reports that incidents of spitting on police officers increased by 15% in 2020 to 2021 compared with the previous year. First Minister. Well, it's utterly unacceptable for police officers or staff to be attacked or abused in any way and I fully support the actions of the police and of course our independent prosecutors and courts in dealing robustly with perpetrators. Our police officers have been protecting the public throughout the pandemic. It is disgusting that some have chosen to attack officers uh, by spitting or coughing at them. Uh, police Scotland has reaffirmed their commitment to tackling assaults, including through the Chief Constable's Assault Pledge. Uh, that pledge promises to help reduce the impact of violence, improve the safety of officers and staff, and provide appropriate support where it does occur. Jamie Green. Can I thank the First Minister? I think that the, the phraseology used is absolutely correct. It is disgusting. It's vile attacks. Uh, but also it's the trend that's rising that should worry us as well. It's no surprise, therefore, that 6,500 days were lost last year due to our officers being attacked and assaulted. That's a rise of more than 400 year on year too. 
Uh, the Scottish Police Federation recently wrote a letter to this Parliament's Justice Committee, and I'm afraid the content could not be more damning. They said, police officers have, uh, throughout this pandemic, felt neglected and unsupported by government. The impact on officer morale of that abandonment should not be underestimated. So, First Minister, we've got rising levels of assaults, we've got rising levels of sick days, and now we've got rising criticism from the front line. Surely we can do something about it. We propose doubling the maximum sentences uh, for assaults on our emergency workers. Will you back us on this? And isn't it about time we send a clear message to our frontline workers that for we in this parliament a have question, got... Mr. Green. The question is, will you back these proposals? And let's send these workers a message. We've got your backs. First Minister. I'm very happy to consider uh, any sensible proposal. Of course, sentencing is a matter for courts uh, and for judges. Judges retain, even um, in terms of short sentences, the discretion to pass the most appropriate sentence based on the facts of the case, and that includes a custodial sentence if they decide the alternatives are not appropriate. Statistics show that the proportion of people given uh, community sentences for convictions under the Emergency Workers Act has actually remained uh, very similar over the past uh, 10 years. Uh, but we will consider any reasonable proposal. Of course, this government uh, has supported the police uh, throughout the pandemic, and we will continue to do so. Uh, I would express again my deep gratitude to the police uh, for everything they've done in these really difficult circumstances. Of course, over uh, the period of our time in government, uh, we have also maintained uh, the number of police officers uh, above the level we inherited when we've seen uh, numbers of police officers decline considerably in other parts of the UK. So we will continue to support our police uh, in all possible ways. And I will end uh, where I started uh, by thanking the police for what they do uh, and also condemning in the strongest possible terms anybody who chooses to abuse or attack our police officers. Pauline McNeill. Thank you. As we all know, police officers have served our country during the pandemic in people's homes, in accident and emergency, in hospital and on our streets, working alongside other dedicated public service teams. And as we've heard, they're exposed to significant risks in their jobs. So I wonder if the First Minister has questioned the GCVI clinicians on why police officers were not a priority for vaccination. I appreciate in the past she said it is a matter for them. But I just wonder if it's maybe time to question why they wouldn't be a priority for the booster programme because it perhaps should be reconsidered in the light of the exposure to risk and so that we are clear as a parliament and as a Scottish government standing up for serving police officers facing these risks. First Minister. Uh, look, in terms of the vaccination programme so far, the JCVI itself has set out its rationale. Uh, the, the benefits uh, of vaccine are obviously greatest in terms of those who are at most uh, clinical risk and that's why the prioritisation uh, approach that was taken uh, was based on greatest clinical risk and of course age which is associated uh, with clinical risk. In terms of the overall programme uh, all police officers will have had the opportunity to be vaccinated um, and of course any police officer who was in any of these higher uh, clinical risk categories would have had the priority that flowed from that. Uh, it was important that we deployed the vaccine programme in the way that would uh, best reduce the overall harm from this virus and that is what we in common with uh, other governments across the UK have done. Uh, these issues are, are possibly even more relevant when it comes to the booster programme because the timing of a booster uh, jag, the efficacy of the booster uh, will be increased 
used if it's given at the right time after somebody's second dose. So uh, that's why the JCVI has recommended a, a six-month gap. Uh, so it's really important uh, that we follow the best clinical and expert advice uh, and that we as politicians don't try to substitute our understandable and often political, uh, legitimate political considerations for the clinical advice uh, that will determine uh, the order in which people are vaccinated so that the overall programme has the biggest impact on keeping the country safe. Question number six, Fiona Hislop. To ask the First Minister what engagement the Scottish Government has had with the UK Government and energy providers in light of the reported wholesale uh, increase in prices. First Minister. Well, I'm particularly concerned about the impact of rising costs on consumers already struggling with pressures on household finances, uh, while the increased default tariff cap reflects underlying increases in prices and will provide some protection to consumers over the coming price cap period. Many households will be badly affected by price rises. We engage frequently with the UK Government, Ofgem, energy suppliers and third sector bodies to discuss the energy system overall. Uh, the Cabinet Secretary for Energy has spoken with Ofgem's Chief Executive to raise our concerns, uh, which of course build on wider worries over the effect of high transmission charges in Scotland. Uh, and he has also met with a range of suppliers and consumer groups. Uh, we've also written to the Bayes Business Secretary, highlighting our views and pressing for long-term solutions to maintain our energy resilience. It's also vital in my view, as I said a few moments ago, that the UK Government urgently considers financial support for low-income households uh, to prevent fuel price increases plunging more people into poverty this winter. And finally, Presiding Officer, uh, I convened a meeting of the Scottish Government's Resilience Committee uh, yesterday afternoon to discuss uh, all of these issues. Uh, we will continue to meet regularly uh, to make sure that the Scottish Government, even although most of these matters are reserved to the UK Government, is doing everything possible to help those impacted. Fiona Hislop. This week, the Conservatives' own Business Secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, has admitted it could be a very difficult winter, with rising energy bills amid a cut to universal credit. So I'd like to ask the First Minister what assurances, if any, has she had from the UK Government that people will not be forced to choose between heating and eating this winter? First Minister. Well, that will be uh, the stark choice that many might face if appropriate action is not taken. Um, I, I wouldn't say we have had any uh, assurances from the UK government uh, to the effect that uh, those choices will be avoided for everybody, but those are the assurances we will continue to press for. Um, I do think uh, for all sorts of reasons and in all sorts of ways, we've been discussing it uh, already today in the context of the NHS, the winter period ahead is going to be more difficult uh, than most of us uh, will ever have remembered. It's incumbent on all governments, it's incumbent on this government to do everything we can to support people through this and where issues are reserved to the UK government and many of these energy cost issues are, then it's incumbent on the UK government to do everything it can uh, to help as well. Uh, two things uh, that I've already referred to today, uh, not going ahead with the cut to universal credit um, and considering additional financial support to low-income households to help them specifically with energy cost rises uh, would be two appropriate things that the UK government could do and we will continue to press them to do them. Question number seven, Rhoda Grant. Ask the First Minister what steps are being taken to ensure that women who have endometriosis are diagnosed within a year. First Minister. 
Reducing the time for diagnosis of endometriosis to under a year is one of the key aims in the Women's Health Plan. Uh, work is already being undertaken by the NHS Centre for Sustainable Delivery uh, towards this. Uh, they are developing a pelvic pain pathway uh, starting with endometriosis. In addition, over the past year, Endometriosis UK were funded by the Scottish Government to carry out research to identify the challenges to diagnosis in primary care um, and also to the implementation of the uh, NICE guideline on endometriosis. This is a, a, an important priority for many women across the country and one we're committed to seeing real improvements on. Rhoda Grant. Um, I thank the First Minister for that response. The Women's Health Plan sets out a goal to reduce endometriosis diagnosis from eight years to less than a year in this parliamentary session. However, there's very little detail on how we plan to reach that goal, especially in our most remote rural areas where proximity to services poses a unique challenge. Campaigners in Caithness are calling for a review of all women's services, including endometriosis, to highlight the challenges they face. Will the First Minister listen to those campaigners and review women's services in areas distance from services such as Caithness? First Minister. Uh, yeah, I'm very happy to give that consideration. I think it's important to say we do listen uh, and have listened on this. The Women's Health Plan, which is really important, I think we're the first country in the UK to publish uh, such a plan. It sets out more than 60 different actions to ensure that women do get the best possible health response right throughout uh, their lives. Uh, a recent report from uh, the UK All-Party Parliamentary Group on endometriosis uh, made some recommendations, which of course we will consider. Uh, they have already been considered in the context of uh, taking forward the Women's Health Plan. Uh, in terms of the particular target around endometriosis, it is a, a really challenging one. The uh, average time for diagnosis right now is more than eight years, uh, but it is right to target bringing that down uh, to under a year. Uh, there's a range of uh, things that have to be done to achieve that. Uh, the work I refer to uh, that the Centre for Sustainable Delivery is doing around the pelvic pain pathway is an important part of that, but also doing more to understand what some of the barriers to diagnosis are, uh, particularly in primary care, is an important part of getting the interventions right. Uh, we will report regularly um, against progress in the Women's Health Plan, uh, all of its actions, uh, but obviously this one in particular. Thank you. I would just like to say at this point that there are a number of members wishing to ask supplementaries on this question, and I regret that we are already over time and impinging on the next item of business, so that will not be possible today. But I would very much like to enable more members to put questions to the First Minister at this session, but the length of some earlier questions and responses means that it hasn't been possible to do so today. So I would urge members to ensure that their questions and responses are as succinct as possible. Thank you. That concludes First, First Minister's questions, and we will now move on to members' business.